and read the same. And then I would open up to a different part and, and he would read his and I would read mine and it was the same. And so I don't know what his church was teaching because he didn't know that the difference was Jesus. But at that time, uh, we just decided that the difference was something that the adults had made up, uh, but that there was really no difference between us. But his Bible had pictures. <laughs> and and his Bible had like Elijah on Mount Carmel, and his Bible had Moses at the Red Sea. And although there weren't many, there were enough to make his Bible more interesting than mine. And so that's the one I took when I went to college. And so every day when I went to college, I would go, then I'd go to sports after my classes in the afternoon, and I'd come back, and I would just start to read the Bible. And so I started in Genesis. Notice as I moved through the... 12 prophets, the minor prophets, that they were arranged a little differently uh, because the last book of the Hebrew Bible is not Malachi like it is in ours. It's two chronicles, no figure. And so you, you read that, and then I, oh, I turn the page because there's still a lot of book left, and it says on the left page, the new covenant according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm thinking, is that, is that that Mormon thing? Because by now, we, I was living in California. I met Mormons, and I'm thinking, what, what is this? And then I start reading the Gospel of Matthew. And it's clear to me that Matthew is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messianic uh, the, the hope for Messiah, the Deliverer. And so I read through Matthew, and now I'm captivated because I'm thinking to myself, why? Why was I ever presented this? This, this is Jewish. This is as Jewish as it gets. And somewhere in the Gospel of Mark, I I was facing a surgery on my jaw, and I knelt by my bed because I thought that's something you should do is kneel. Because you know I was praying that this was this it's was not working. my prayer. This was like real prayer. This was desperate prayer. What's the And I knelt by my bed, and I I remember to say. If you are who this book says you are, then you can heal my job. This book is true. And I experienced the miracle in that too. that this has always meant something to me. Because it's not just the New Testament, it's the new and what we commonly call old. But what I'd like to suggest to you, if we can have the first slide up, Philip, just the title slide, um, that, that this is one story spanning two testaments. Uh, it's, it's really not helpful to think in terms of Old Testament and New Testament because no one wants old. Right? Let's just be honest. No, no one wants old, but everyone wants to be first. So, so think of this as two testaments, the first testament and the second testament. Think, think of it like the first installment and watching a Netflix series, right? And, and so, so you have the first installments and you have the second installments, but you don't discount either. But like Shane said three weeks ago, if you mix and match the covenants, you'll end up getting the worst of both and lack the best of either. 
Okay, that was a great statement that he had. I stalk him every Sunday. So, so he, he really did say that. Go back three weeks ago. So this morning, what I want to do with you and, and see if this works and fulfills the assignment is I want us to look at the sweeping story that spans both Testaments. Because in doing so, we'll understand these statements. And so um, if we can go on to the next slides, I just want to read some scriptures uh, with you, if we can go on. Uh, because we're to, we're the story, right? It has a beginning in Genesis, has an end in Revelation. And so as we read through and, and we go through this progressive revelation of God in this story, there has to be a point where we say, as we move through the story, how do we begin to interpret what's happened before, earlier in the story? Not because it's old and to be discarded, but because it's earlier. And Jesus makes a number of statements followed by Paul, like in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 39, you study the scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you possess eternal life. And it is these same scriptures that testify to me. Okay? Or let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12. All these events happen to them as examples for us. He's, re he's referring to the First Testament. They were written down to warn us who live at the time when this age is drawing to a close. If you think you're standing strong, be careful for you too may fall into the same sin or rebellion that happened in those earlier narratives. Romans 15, 4, such things were written in the scriptures, meaning the First Testament, long ago to teach us. They give us hope and encouragement as we wait, as we wait patiently for God's promises. Or again, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for every one of God's promises are yes in him, in Jesus. Therefore also through him the amen is spoken so the glory we give to God. So in other words, as we move from the First Testament into the Second Testament in this one story, what begins to emerge is, is that we understand this story supremely through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. He, he becomes the lens through which we understand our story. And so this morning, I want to look at this story. I want to do a sweeping overview of the story with you. And as we do so, we can go ahead. There's five main storylines in scriptures. Let's go on to the next slide. Okay, there's God, the adversary, the mutiny, the human condition, and God's plan to rescue and, and restore us. Okay, that's, that's the five storylines of the Bible. Okay. Uh, you see it in the First Testament, and it moves through into the Second Testament. Okay. The, the, it's those five storylines, easily memorable. God, the adversary, the mutiny, our human condition, and God's plan to rescue and restore us. Those are, those are the five storylines in, in, the, in the scriptures. There's not a sixth. Okay. It's those five storylines. And we can illustrate that pretty easily. Uh, no, let's go back. Let's go back. I want to spend some time here. If, if you want to take a picture of one slide this morning, this, this would be it. Um, and then there's one later that might be helpful. Um, so that, this is the story. In the beginning was God, Genesis. If you get Genesis, the book of Genesis wrong, you get the whole Bible wrong. Okay? So, so in the beginning was God and God created. And this first storyline is 
Who is God? What does he do? How does he do it? Okay, what's his nature? What's his attributes? Uh, This is established for us, this storyline of God. The second storyline is is that there's not just God, there's an adversary. And this adversary exists to in conflict with the God who created. And his purpose is to defame, destroy the works of God and to deceive those who put their faith in him. And that's the second major storyline in the Bible. The third is that there's a mutiny, that there's a mutiny that's taken place. So in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, you have these first storylines. Okay, you, you have God created the heavens and the earth. He created all life. We're, we're creatures. We're the highest level of creatures, but we were created. Uh, we're creatures. Uh, and, and God created us, and the adversary came to deceive us. And in that deception came this challenge to us okay, that, that we wanted to become equal with God. Most people, it's not a question of not believing God. It's just that there's a God and we're kind of equal to him. So, so we take life into our hands. The, the, the desire to control, to control outcomes and things. It's this, this desire to overtake God, this desire to supplant the supremacy of God. And so, so sin is more than a mistake. All, that, all this human's wreckage that's going on isn't because someone made a mistake in a garden. It's because this is the ultimate replacement theology. We wanted to become equal with God. And so it doesn't mean you don't exist. It just means we want to be equal to you. Okay? And, and in, it's kind of like for those of us who have had kids, okay, and, and there comes a point when our kids are growing up where, where they don't, it's not that they don't love us. It's not that they don't know that we're the dad or the mom. It's just that they think they know as much or more than we do, right? That, that's the issue. It's, it's not that they say you don't exist. They might say to you, I wish you weren't, a, I wish you'd never been born. And, and that's always great because then you look at them and go, yeah, and then <laughs> you wouldn't be here either. But, but, but anyways, so your kids, it's, that, that's, and, and we have this inherent sense like there's mutiny in the house. You know, that sure mom, sure dad, that, that phase is over. Now there's this mutiny. I know better than you. Yeah, yeah. I know as much as you. So, there's, so we see that, Genesis chapter three, we, we see the mutiny. And then as we begin to go through Genesis, uh, we begin to see that God starts this plan of rescue and restoration. And we have the rainbow symbol um, with, with Noah and the ark that God promises. Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, you're seeing a divine symbol to remind us that God would never destroy uh, the earth in that way ever again and, and, and all life like that. And then we move on to God's revelation to Abraham uh, in which uh, God says, I'm going to make through you a great nation, descendants that, that are more in number than the stars in the sky. And, and this is the next step of God's plan to, to rescue and restore us. And then we, he redeems Israel out of 400 years of slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai. And in a very short period of time, he takes the people who over 400 years of, of slavery have lost their sense of culture, nation, identity. And in 400 years, I mean, there at the foot of Mount Sinai, God almost in an instant 
does nation building. He gives them identity. He gives them purpose. He gives them land. He, he even gives them fashion. He tells the priests and people how to dress and even tells them what to look like. So we see God's kind of hand as a fashion designer. Uh, there's songs that emerge. And, and so in an instant at the foot of this mountain, a nation is being birthed, is being formed, literally almost you could say out of dust. It's like it says in Genesis that, that God created us out of dust. There in the dust of the desert, God is creating, forming this new nation. And then not only does he give them identity, he gives them ethics. He gives them a code of how to live together. How, what, is, what does worship look like? Uh, given what they've seen in Egypt and everything that's been imprinted on their brains during that time, God reveals a pattern of worship and life and living together. What, how shall we think about justice? How will we think about peace and family and health and everything? So, so all of this is revealed at Mount Sinai. And again, this is meant to restore uh, and rescue God's people. And then we get on to, to David and the Davidic kingdom and God's promise that now in this land, I am going to give you a kingdom that will be everlasting and always expanding. And so we see that God's intention is to bring people closer and closer and to restore that Genesis promise that he gave to Abraham. And then we have the prophets preaching that there'll come a time when God will visit himself, that, that he will come and he will give you a new heart and a new hope. And he'll raise up a mighty people of God. And so we see in that blue timeline, uh, we see that God's plan is to return people to the fullness of his reign. But the jagged red line uh, is the line of human experience and brokenness. That, that God's line of promise and our line of experience are never in alignment together. And so God comes in the person of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the aspiration and promises of the First Testament, uh, but he comes to, to, to fulfill them and create a new life. And so, by the way, it got cut off, but above the blue line, it says the kingdom of God, that, that God's realm, his reign, his real presence uh, is now coming in the person of Jesus to, again, fulfill the rescue and restoration promise that he made to Abraham. Uh, but, but he does so in a way that, that fulfills it, but then he sets it on a slightly different tra trajectory. And so now, uh, like Jesus says, you search the scriptures, but they testify to me. They're, they're all about me. Okay. Everything that's read, that we read in the First Testament we read now through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because let's face it, there's a lot of stuff in, in the First Testament that gets reinterpreted because of who Jesus is. So the First and Second Testament, it's not that the First Testament doesn't have weight, value, and authority anymore. It's just that if you, if you think of it like a scale, they're not balanced. Because, because of who Jesus is, he brings weight, and, and now we tip the scale of understanding towards him. We tip it towards him. So this is the grand story of Scripture with the five storylines. Okay? Again, what are they? It's God, adversary, mutiny, the human condition, 
and God's plan to rescue and restore humanity. Those are the five storylines of scripture. And you can see how they're worked out simply in, in the timeline of the Testaments. The Testaments are the testimony and the narrative of these five timelines. Okay, so let's go deeper now. Let's go on to the next slide, please. So here, here we go. And because uh, there's an adversary and there's a mutiny, we, we now go counterclockwise. Okay, uh, we, we're moving counterclockwise. And so... So now we can begin to unpack these five storylines and go a little deeper. So first, there's God. Next slide, please. And, and so scripture reveals God's nature, his character, his attributes. Uh, but because of Jesus now, we now supremely think of God as one God revealing himself in three persons. That's that mystery trinity doctrine and don't try and explain it. Don't, don't ever try and explain it. Okay? Because the minute, because here's the thing, all other religions want to take away the mystery of who God is. Okay? And so every religion wants to say the Trinity doesn't exist because it makes no sense. Okay? That's, that's the first testament, us telling God, this can't be true because it makes no sense to us. Okay, that's us wanting to be equal with God. That's the children telling the parent, we know better than you. Okay, this makes no sense. But the reality is, God has nothing in common with us. God can't make sense to us because he's greater than us. He has, we have more in common with an amoeba in a pond than we do with God. Because we're created. God's uncreated. It's like my dog Murphy. He, when, for those of you who have dogs, when that dog cocks its head like you're crazy, it's like, Murphy, you don't know squat. You're a dog. You're my friend. You're my true confessor. We go for walks daily, but at the end of the day, you're a dog. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The Trinity is simply the way that God reveals himself to be God. Okay. It's not like water, ice, and steam. Uh, it's, you know, you could, it's, this is the way that God reveals himself to be God. And if God is who he says he is, and if he's unknowable apart from him revealing himself to us, then God is a glorious mystery who has chosen to reveal himself through the grace and life of Jesus Christ. And so scripture teaches us that. As we, as we go through from Genesis to Revelation, we learn the nature, character, attributes of God, but supremely, if Jesus is who he says he is, we believe God has supremely revealed himself clearly and wholly in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Amen. To where even on the last day, when, when Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. Okay? I mean, this is, this is incredible stuff. This, this means that, that if you want to read through the Testaments and you want to 
have a key to understanding God, it has to be Jesus and how Jesus reveals him. Okay? So we learn the nature of God. We learn his attributes. Okay, next slide. Storyline number one, God. Storyline number two, the adversary. Uh, he has nature, purpose, and tactics too. His nature is to corrupt. His purpose is to destroy. His tactics are to deceive. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Okay? This, this, this intention to destroy, corrupt, and to deceive uh, the people of God. Another great storyline of, of scripture. So that's storyline number two. Storyline number three, there's a mutiny. And in that mutiny, we learn uh, in the scriptures that about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, the world promotes her idols. Uh, the flesh, that's us. We want pride, self-advancement, self-sufficiency, um, our, our, our narcissism, that it all has to be about moi and, and what pleases me, what gives me pleasure. Uh, that's the flesh. And then, of course, the devil's always on, on the lookout to deceive and to destroy uh, the, the works and to which and even Jesus says, I come to destroy the works of the devil. And so another great storyline of Scripture. Third, our human condition. Um, I like to think of this triangle. You, you hear the Bermuda Triangle where you know planes disappear, ships disappear. Uh, this is the Bermuda Triangle of the soul. Okay, this is, this is the human condition. Uh, this is uh, abandonment, rejection, humiliation. Uh, when, we, when there's abandonment, we have shame. Uh, when we have rejection, we, we, we kind of, I think we isolate ourselves in personal prisons uh, that are always trying to break out of that. And then uh, humiliation creates this guilt and condemnation trail. And if you look in the Gospels, for example, everybody that Jesus meets, that he heals, that he receives, that he blesses, that are in one of these areas. They're, they're, in, they're in one of these areas. Okay. Think of the leper. The lepers have shame because society has abandoned them. Uh, they've been rejected and they live in isolated colonies that are really like prisons. And, and then they have their own personal prison that they can't have relationships because they're considered unclean people and they live with guilt and condemnation trail because the, the teaching of the time is you're this way because you sinned. Okay. You think of the woman who, who, who has been hemorrhaging for all those years, same thing. The man at the pool who's been crippled and he says, every time I try and get to the water to be healed, other people get in front of me. Same thing. Jesus is addressing the human condition and and the scriptures, first and second testament, are always trying to address the human condition. Uh, this Bermuda Triangle of the soul, which represents the consequences of the mutiny. The mutiny and the human condition go together. So again, up to this point, we have the four storylines of scripture. God, okay, the adversary, okay, the mutiny. The mutiny has consequences, which leads to the human condition, which then leads us to God's purpose and rescue, the fifth storyline, okay? And so here we have the great covenants in the Old Testament, covenant to Abraham, which was a promise of land, people, and blessing, right? You go back to the beginning of Genesis 12, see it's land, people, and blessing. You get to Moses, okay, it's law, Okay, how do we live? Okay. 
What, what allows us to look like people who live a surrendered life to God? It's about holiness. It's about people. How do, how do, how do we live together? Okay. And, and with this promise, I've left it off of land again, that he's going to lead them into a promised land. And then through David, we have the vision of kingdom, a realm which includes land and space. Okay. The people of that land who, who live there. And then the whole idea of worship through song and praise. And that's about recognizing the presence of God. And so you see that with David bringing the ark, which the people believe that's where God lived. He sat on the throne that was created by the two angels that were bowed and bent over on the top of the ark. And their outstretched wings created the seat for God to sit on in the presence of the people. And so... So you have Jesus, our rescue and restoration, fulfilling this. And so we see this, if, if you go back to, we won't go back to that slide, but the slide of the Ark of Promise, we see in the person of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that trajectory of God's promise and hope. And with the, now with the presence of the Holy Spirit, that the human experience can be more in alignment with that hope. That is promised. Which then we can summarize it with this slide. Is that we have the five great storylines of scripture. Right? We have God. Adversary. The mutiny. The human condition. And God's plan. To rescue us. Which then going back to Shane's statement. Okay, so, so let's stop there for a second. And so for us as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a daily decision uh, because we still live in that point of the human condition. Uh, we all have a condition. Okay. Okay. We all have a condition. Some of our condition might be fractionally better than another, but, but we all live in that condition. And in that condition, we have a thousand daily choices of whether we will live a surrendered life that's in alignment with God's plan to rescue and restore, or we can participate in the great mutiny. And that's, that's every day. The Christian life is a journey of 10,000 yeses. Okay? It's, it's the journey of, in little things and great things, choosing how are we going to live Will we live from this point in this human condition? Will we live in submission and surrender and in alignment with God's great storyline of rescue and restoration? Or are we going to live in the storyline of our human condition and the mutiny for which it's a consequence of? And, and that, that challenges us today, this moment, in this place. As we anticipate the week ahead, the afternoon, the people we're going to see, the people we are hoping we don't see. Everything about this reflects our orientation. And we can swing one way or the other. But we are constantly caught up in these five great storylines. These five great storylines. It's a daily decision. And the great thing about thinking in terms of these five great storylines, think of them like guardrails on a road, is that those guardrails exist 
to keep you on the road and you might bump and scrape against them, but, but they keep you from going off a cliff. Okay? They, they keep you safe. These five great storylines are terrific for any of us who are in any kind of teaching ministry, whether we're teaching first graders or 12th graders, whatever, because the focus are these five great storylines. If we don't focus on these five great storylines, then we are setting up our, the next generation for error and disappointment. Because usually, if we don't focus on these five great storylines, we'll focus on a sixth storyline which doesn't exist. And that's the storyline of me. Interpreting scriptures around me. There's just not a lot in here about me. There, there's a lot in here about us. Okay, simple thing. You read the letters of Paul. For those of you who have read the letters of Paul, Romans, 1 Corinthians, whatever. Okay. Coming from the United States, when we read you, Y-O-U, we think moi. And that's, that be, is setting us up for disappointment and failure. Because it's never you singular. There's, there's no you singulars in the Second Testament. It, they're all you plurals. Well, that's, that's a huge thing. That, that's going to affect how you live within these five great storylines. So, so go back to Shane's statement about if you mix and match the covenants, you'll get the worst of both. And you'll lack the best of either. Because what you're doing is you're going to be interpreting the Bible in a way that moves outside these five great storylines weighted through the lens of Jesus Christ. So, so for example, how you think about end times. If you mix and match and you don't understand it through the person of Jesus, God's clearest, cleanest revelation, then your end times understanding is bound to be a conspiracy theory. You're going to weight both testaments absolutely equal and therefore you're going to have to come up with some kind of harmony plan that then brings things together in a way that they were never meant to be together to come up with some timeline and chronicle for Jesus' return. And, and you'll begin to hear stories like the, the red heifers are being bred in the wilderness of Judea in order to be offered in the rebuilt temple because of what the First Testament says, even though it's nowhere said in the Second Testament, but because where the First Testament said. And therefore, you begin to come up with these ideas and concepts that don't exist if you follow these five major storylines weighted through the person of Jesus. So for example, and I, this might be controversial for you, I do not expect the temple to ever be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Because one, it's never mentioned in the Second Testament. Secondly, Jesus says, I'm the temple. 
destroy me, and three days later, it will be rebuilt. And it, John even says parenthetically that people didn't know when Jesus said destroy the temple, they was referring to himself. Okay? So already, the apostles that were with them are waiting the, the testimony of the testaments through him. Hebrews 8, 13 uh, says that when God makes a new covenant, he makes the old one redundant. It's not necessary anymore because you think about it. Temple gets rebuilt and sacrifices are starting to be offered in the temple. For what? What, what, what is it going to mean? Jesus is already the lamb of God that was sacrificed for the sins of the world, right? Okay, so... Why is God going to prophesy and rebuild a temple whose worship practices have no meaning because they've all been completely satisfied in the personal work of Jesus? But you begin to get these crazy understandings because you're not following the five main storylines of Scripture interpreted and weighted through the personal work of Jesus Christ. So if you memorize those five storylines, then, then the next thing it gives you is whenever you're reading the Bible, you can ask yourself five questions. What does this teach me about God? Okay. I should say this. So you read the Bible through the glasses, lens of Jesus Christ. Then you ask yourself, what is this teaching me about God? What is this reminding me of regarding our adversary? What is this reminding and convicting me of regarding the great mutiny? What is this saying about my human condition? And what am I learning afresh about God's plan to rescue and to restore? Okay. Okay. Five questions you can ask yourself every time you read the Bible. Okay. And if we're not asking those questions, this is why I have problems. This is why I love your pastor's preaching is he doesn't give tips sermons. Okay? Tips are like four steps to a happy household. Okay? Those are me sermons. Ultimately, at the end of the day, those are me sermons. Okay? And the trouble with me sermons is ultimately they'll disappoint because people will trust what I say when I give my four tips to a happy household and then they might get married and begin to have kids and they practice the four tips and they're home life is coming apart. And that's when I begin to hear, I tried Christianity, it didn't work for me. For me. But that's the trouble. For me is not one of the great storylines of the Bible. It's not one of the great storylines of the Bible. So five questions I can always ask myself, and then they give me five questions I can always ask other people. So like when I meet other Jewish people like my father and they say, I can't believe in a God that would kill people in Auschwitz, kill my people in Auschwitz. Five storylines gives me five questions. Question number one could be, gosh, I'm... I understand that. Can you tell me what kind of God you believe in? Because the five great storylines in the Bible, the first one being God, his nature, his attributes, his character, 
I don't believe in that kind of God. So that's one question I can ask the person I'm having a conversation with is to learn from them, well, what, what, kind, what kind of God do you believe in? Because I couldn't believe in that kind of God either. Or maybe it's what happened to the Jewish people in Auschwitz is evil. What, what's your understanding of evil? What's your understanding of... So, so do you get my point that these five great storylines begin to give me the five great questions for having conversations that I hope can result in influencing people towards Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You search the scriptures, John chapter 5, looking for it because you think in them you have eternal life. But they testify to me. So five great storylines. God, adversary, human condition, restoration. Because rescue and restoration, because in Revelation, when John has this vision, it's the new creation, the ultimate expression of restoration through Christ, descends to us. That's the ultimate culmination of, of restoration and rescue is this new heavens and new earth in the, at the end of the book. It ends with him. Is this coming down again of the new creation into the creation to fully rescue and restore. There will be no more missing chromosomes. There will be no more weeds in the garden. There'll be no more violence. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more death. All the consequences of the mutiny will be permanently and forever reversed because the great and gracious storyline is it begins with God in creation in Genesis and at the end of the Second Testament it ends with God in the book of Revelation with the new creation uh, completely swallowing up the old. And if we keep that storyline and that arc of restoration and rescue before us, it will allow us to see the unity that exists between the two testaments. How one informs the other and the other allows us to look in and see the beauty of it. Because at the end of the day, this is Palm Sunday, right? And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew narrates it. In fact, I'm just going to close by reading it. Now, chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they approached Jerusalem and to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples telling them, go to the village ahead of you. Right away, you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey, 
and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And later, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the crowds went ahead of him, and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. A quote from Psalm 118. Now, if you're just in the, in the First Testament, you're expecting a king restoring the Davidic kingdom. But through the Second Testament, because those scriptures teach and testify to Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, we are able then to look back at that prophecy and we see it as a testimony to him. In the First Testament, they're expecting a king with a crown, with an army, and a force to throw out all invaders. Through Jesus in the New Testament, in the Second Testament, we look back and we see that as a testimony being fully fulfilled with reasons why in the Second Testament. If you look at Zechariah 9.9 as saying, a king with authority and an army and an empire, and you look at Matthew's Gospel 17, and you make them equal, it does not work. So this is where faith comes in. Is Jesus who he claims to be? If he's not, he's not worth following. I mean, we should just jettison this whole Christian faith thing. If he is not who he claims to be, he's not worth following. Because no one ever lived, according to these testimonies, no one ever lived like Jesus lived. No one ever taught what Jesus taught. No one ever claimed for themselves what Jesus claimed for himself. And therefore, this is either true or it's not. It's not partially true, okay? And partially false. It's either wholly true or it's not. And if it's not, then let's just finish this game and get on and eat, drink, and be merry and do whatever you want. You'll have to decide. These five storylines, God, adversary, the mutiny, our human condition, and that God has a plan to rescue and restore humanity. And the great thing about these storylines is that they make sense of my world. It makes sense of my life. What I see around me, how people are ultimately transformed and healed. What brings people together? The power of forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, all these themes that we so desperately need in our world, they're addressed and answered in these five great storylines. And the great thing is that these storylines are not just ways of understanding. Each one contains a promise. God creates, he will recreate. The adversary exists, but he will be defeated. The human mutiny will be put down. Our human condition 
will be healed and transformed into new life because God intends to rescue and restore humanity into and release us from our fallen image into an eternal life with, with him, which means life without limited resources. Okay. Limited resources of time, of, of, of provision, of God's presence. All the things that limit our life. You know, as we anticipate the world, we trust opening up post-COVID. You know, we, no limitations. Get on an airplane, fly to wherever you want to be. Go to any country you want to be. I mean, a world without limitation. Eternal life is a life forever without limitations. And that's the promise of these five great storylines. If this was a class, I'd invite questions, but I think we're out of time. So I'll hang out. If you have any questions, I'm happy to visit with you about them. Father, thank you for your testaments. Testaments of your grace, testaments that reveal who you are, your promises, testimonies and te- that, that are clarified through the second testament of Jesus Christ. But Lord, at the end of this morning, it's ultimately not about what our minds learn today. Yes. It's the challenge to receive the one who entered Jerusalem on a donkey, humbly and unassuming. Lord, we confess this day that we want power. Power. 